Another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys. Yes. With me's Nick. I'm Joe from every other episode of the show with us. Is, today is Leica the podcast dog. Steven Seagal. And a cardboard cutout of Steven Seagal. And a cardboard cutout of Superman. He said if we didn't tell anybody that he was here, he was going to, what, karate chop us? Uh, snap our necks with yeah. his gut. Uh, so we are on Sweaty. part three of the Soviet Afghan war. So if you're just joining us for whatever reason, go ahead and Go back to the first episode, or you won't really understand what I'm talking about, or live dangerously and start on part three. Free country, do whatever the fuck you want. Um, I am drinking vodka out of a cup with a straw uh, because I'm a fancy lad. Flaccid straw. Yeah, yeah it's a silicone straw. It doesn't have a lot of tensile strength. Uh, makes it kind of strange. Does it? Well, like it moves around and flexes when you're trying to drink <laughs> out of it. It flexes on you? Yeah, like. I'm all for saving the environment, but I feel like we could have a harder plastic <laughs> and it would probably work better. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Like limp dick straw. Yeah, it's definitely a limp dick straw. It's like making it kind of difficult. Uh, so when we left you last week, the Soviet army was digging into Afghanistan, while the Soviet premier, Leonid Brezhnev, wanted soldiers to withdraw by the end of the first month. Uh, the rest of the people in power decided that wasn't a good idea, and said they should st- stay until the new Afghan government under Babrak Karmal uh, could cement its legitimacy. Uh, By 1980, not much had changed other than the Soviet military finding itself in combat all over the country with no idea what the hell they were doing. Uh, Because remember, they didn't plan on this. They still play that whole advisor type role? Uh, Yeah, for the most part. Um, I mean, they did not expect to face general combat. Like They they probably expected their Spetsnaz and their elite soldiers to kind of do what our elite soldiers do now, which is, um, you know, kind of hit and run, um, bring the guerrilla warfare to the guerrillas. Uh, instead, pretty much every unit in Afghanistan was getting ambushed like all the time. Yeah. Um, but none of that mattered, right? They didn't have to win. They just had to hang on for a few months till Carmel's supporters, which he totally swore that he had rushed to the government, <laughs> uh, which would cripple the Mujahideen um, that were fueled for hatred of Taraki, not Carmel. Now that is what Carmel told the Soviets. Well, totally swore that he had. Yeah, yeah. He the the Soviets kind of just took him at his word that like yeah the <laughs> Afghan like people a, love a me. Total bro. Not to mention like remember he was in exile when the Soviets put him in power. So like that should have been the fucking first hint that if he had a lot of support he wouldn't have been in fucking exile. He sounds like that kid in high school that swore he had alcohol. At- he, like he had a girlfriend in Canada or went to a yeah. different high school. Yeah. No, dude, I swear. You just you just you don't you don't know the school, so you wouldn't have met her. The Soviets seemed to take a lot of things at face value when it was told to them by people in the Afghan government, and vice versa. But yeah, they tend to listen to shit that they probably shouldn't do. Yeah, and they're both really fucking guilty of that. Yeah. Uh, to an insane degree. Um, Children so, having power. Yeah. So just- it should come as a surprise to absolutely no one when that support did not show up. Uh, instead, the Mujahideen ranks grew while the already dwindling support for the government withered away completely. To make matters worse, Carmel was totally unable to govern. In some places where Soviet soldiers went, villagers thought Mohammed Daoud was still in, uh, was still in power. Remember, that was like oh, yeah. two presidents ago. <laughs> uh, he had been killed over two years before. 
The Afghan people simply News did not give a shit. Slow. I mean, the Afghan people simply did not give a shit about Carmel. And also, that not is true. Um, news does travel very s- slowly in some of these rural parts of Afghanistan, which just goes to show how hard it is for a central government, any central government in Afghanistan, to control them. Um, there is numerous tales of U.S. soldiers going to remote parts of Afghanistan and the villagers thinking they were Soviets. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. A lot of it's secondhand, but I mean, yeah, it it happened. There's some parts that are just ungovernable for whatever government is there. It only works if you don't try to fuck with them, which is exactly what they're trying to do. Right. Um, meanwhile, in Kabul, Soviet soldiers did what Soviet soldiers tend to do, going on looting sprees. Mm. Uh, Valery Vestroyten, who is a, a Soviet captain, claims that neither he nor his unit's political officer were even aware that the Soviet army had a regulation forbidding looting, which it definitely did, and it was not enforced. It was just so widespread, everybody just thought it was okay. Oh, this is just what we do. Yeah. Even though there's explicit orders not to do it. Uh, and they also, so they gave out like a pamphlet. Um, it was like how the, I think it was called like how the loyal internationalist so, uh, socialist soldier helps his Afghan comrades or something to that extent. Um, and it looked almost identical to shit that I got when I went over there. I mean, mm. political stuff aside, they completely didn't put that in there. But like, don't steal from them. Don't um, look at the women. Don't get, un- don't get undressed in front of them. Things like that. Like it was... If you put it in English and put it on a PowerPoint, it would look identical to what I looked at. Oh. And they just ignored it all. Uh, <laughs> I would imagine so. Um, troops tore their way through stores that had consumer goods that were completely unavailable in the Soviet Union, like TVs and boom boxes, which are pretty fucking rad. What? Yeah. Uh, Af- oh, Afghanistan. Yeah. So the Afghans got their hand on it through the black market trade through Pakistan, who got it from the US. Um, so just imagine, um, like, all these depressed Soviet soldiers just get like rolling down the street, listening to music at a ghetto blasters. It's pretty fucking awesome. Um, many of the first wave of soldiers in Afghanistan uh, saw it as a relatively peaceful place. The people called the uh, the Russian Shuravi, I believe it's pronounced, um, and were they were just too busy scratching out their living from like the dusty earth that didn't want to give them crops because yeah. of bad. Uh, land redistribution programs. Like they remember they're still in the middle of a famine. Um, eventually officers would visit locals houses to trade stolen military supplies for food, alcohol, and clothes. Everything's based off of stealing. So one of the things that is important here is the Soviet soldiers were, were not actually paid in the traditional sense. Um, they worked off tips. Well, they had a salary. Technically it was really small. Cause remember they're conscripts. Uh, but the Soviet Union get around that by paying them in something called checky, which is something of like a company script. Are you familiar with that, what that is? So a company script is something that kind of happened in the U.S. during um, the early Industrial Revolution and, and during like the coal boom. What it was, it was money given to you by a company that only could be sold in co- uh, or only used in company stores. Right. And that's kind of what like checky was. It was a script given to them by the Soviet government that could only be spent in military stores. But the military, but it was effectively worthless, um, right. and the military stores, like the people running them, wanted to make money too, so they just wouldn't accept it because they knew it was worthless. The horse's system. <laughs> so they effectively went unpaid. Yeah. Um, so they did what? So the Soviet soldiers, who remember, are badly undersupplied. They don't even have the right boots. Um, many of them were deployed without just basic supplies. They uh, had a uniform on their back and a weapon for most of the, most of the time. Um, 
officers and soldiers came to uh, to covet the kebabs and beers for sale at Afghan stalls outside the new bases. And because they had no real Afghan currency, they took to selling tent cloth, soap, and anything else uh, that the impoverished locals would buy. Because um, they didn't have money. Yeah. Yeah, just can't sell the vodka. Nobody had money. Yeah. <laughs> also remember, drinking was strictly prohibited by enlisted soldiers in the Soviet army. Officers could drink. But enlisted could not. I'm sure the enlisted found the way. Oh, yeah. We always do. Yeah, I actually, there's an entire episode uh, dedicated to that down the line, which we will talk about in depth. So ready for it. Um, one of the Soviets' most prop- popular acquisitions was something called Sharo, which is something I have never seen before. It's, it's an alcoholic drink distilled from grapes. Kind of like moonshine wine, I guess. Okay. Unfortunately, if locals are not willing to trade with their new occupiers, that did not stop the soldiers from simply taking it. Robbing people quickly became the favorite way to obtain goods. Most of the shops were only secured by a small padlock as they stayed closed at night. Soon entire Soviet units would go on patrol at night just to break in and steal shit. There was actually... That's just a mission. Yeah, uh, and everybody was fine with it. Except the locals, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the reason for this go beyond uh, just unsupervised soldiers doing what unsupervised soldiers do. Soviet soldiers and units did not deploy with many logistical units uh, to support their soldiers, nor the supplies for them to live on. Soviet leaderships did not accept, expect soldiers to be facing any real danger, nor do they expect them to be there very long. So soldiers were left largely on their own as deployments got longer and longer to take care of themselves. Almost as soon as the Soviets put Karmal in power, they began to regret it. Karmal loved to drink, but he's one of the guys that when he drank, he insisted on pouring out shots for everyone else and getting them to drink with oh, them Jesus too. Christ. Soon, Soviet advisors noticed that the president and his entire presidential guard was completely trashed all the time. They had to replace his bodyguards with guys who didn't drink, which is probably a pretty fucking hard thing to do and find in the Soviet army. Yeah. So How do you interview for that? They probably just wanted people who weren't down with getting hammered all the time. Um, and they were under strict orders like to say so. still hard to find. It probably. Uh, in the beginning, the Soviets were very effective in fighting the growing Mujahideen movement. In the early stages of the war, though... That was because they were fighting people who were armed with, at best, some bolt-action rifles. Um, some of the Afghan soldiers who deserted en masse had brought their weapons with them, but they're still very lightly armed and badly trained. Um, and the best, So the best case scenario the rebels were looking at were deserting Afghan soldiers who got very, very little training in the first right. place. Even less than the Soviet conscripts who got very, very little training. Uh, one of the Soviet advisors noted that most Afghan soldiers could not fire their weapon correctly. Um, because they simply weren't training them to do so. <laughs> so the, the, the best case rebels are still pretty bad. Also, they had a really bad grasp on tactics. Uh, for one instance, a guy named Aka Yasin, an ethnic Tajik who ran off to join the rebels after he was expelled from school, refusing to attend political rallies, fought Soviet tank columns with little more than rocks and Molotov cocktails. He talks about one guy who wrapped himself in cloth, doused himself in gasoline, and lit himself on fire before, before running off to fight a Soviet tank. No, of course that did not fucking work. The guy got shot. It could have worked. I don't know how. Is he it, supposed to climb up the tank wall on fire and jump inside? Yes. That's the only way that could have worked. Yes. That's fucking stupid. Um, they also dug traps and covered themselves with logs in order to uh, disable tanks. Kind of like tank traps. Uh when fighting in the open turned into a suicide mission, they resorted to sniper attacks. Because their lack of resources at the time, they began making their own bullets in their houses. A lot of these bullets simply exploded in the guns and blinded people. Oh, God. Yeah. None of that mattered, though. The cause flourished. Like, I'm willing to bet not a lot of people knew that, like, hey, I bought this baggie full of bullets from this guy down the street where well, we can go fight the Soviets now. And <laughs> had no idea it was going to blow up on them. But, like, they didn't... 
through all of this, it simply didn't matter. The, the ranks of the Mujahideen just kept growing. At no point did they decline through the entire war. Oh, there, there's probably the, still the blind dude that's still out there fighting. Like, yeah, my AK blew up, but uh, still going at it. Just point me in the right direction, bro. It only happened once. Yeah. What are the chances of it happening again? The Soviets and, by extension, Karmal did something no other leader in Afghanistan could do. Unite the Afghan people of all ethnicities and political affiliations together under the banner of Islam combined with the healthy dose of fuck that guy. <clears throat> Karmal was fucking up so badly that even other communists began to join the Islamists to fight the government. Jesus. There was a, actually an entire unit of Maoists uh, who uh, existed all the way up until very, very recently who were fighting the government as well. Really? So like they were so bad, even other communists threw their lot in with oh, the Islamists who hated communists. Um, they didn't agree that he was trying to change his name to Caramel. Yeah, with a C. Yeah. Um, as the different Mujahideen groups considered coordinate, uh, started coordinating their efforts, Soviet forces began responding to the growing operations against them. In March, Soviet forces launched their first major operation out of Jalalabad uh, to take control of the rest of Kunar Valley after a major desertion of Afghan soldiers. In other places, the growing rebel forces were annihilated after attempting to conduct operations in large groups, making them very easy to target for Soviet aircraft. Really? Yeah, they, because a lot, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of Afghan soldiers were deserting. So they were trying to help the rebels by training them how to fight. Mm. And the only way they knew how to fight was conventionally. So, and admittedly, before the Soviets showed up, the rebels could fight in large formations and not really have to worry about anything because the Afghan Air Force is really bad at its job. So, I mean, they could get hit with a bomb, but it was pretty rare. What were, the, what were they flying? MiGs, mostly. MiGs? Yeah. Okay. Everything they have is from oh, the Soviet very Union. Very communist, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. After getting hosed by gunships enough time, they morphed into what everybody kind of knows them as today. Small groups of highly mobile units between 10 and 30 people. Uh, the Soviets were completely unprepared for this. Many of the country's roads were surrounded on both sides by steep cliffs and served snipers very well. Soviet vehicles are even more restricted on the narrow passes, whereas the Mujahideen move much more freely deep in the countryside and on the well-known mountain passes used to stage most of their attacks. The Mujahideen, who the Soviets had begun to be called Dushman, uh, uh, douchebags, yes. <laughs> became notorious for damaging bridges in order to, to bring long armored columns to a screeching halt and into kill zones that would stretch across an entire valley. Fuck. These well-planned attacks filled Soviet soldiers with fe fear, and many of them began to refuse to leave their bases. Afghans also attacked with acts of sabotage against government buildings, utilities, and fuel lines. Mujahideen fighters are very courageous, almost to a fault. Muhammad Youssef, who headed the Pakistani intelligence agency's Afghan Bureau, who had helped train Afghan rebel commanders and foot soldiers, said he faced difficulties convincing them to stage operations stealthily. He wrote that they performed, quote, noise, they, they preferred noise and excitement with plenty of opportunity for personal glory. One fighter claimed he charged a Russian soldier with an empty rifle and beat him to death with its magazine. <laughs> Noise and excitement. This actually, ah. this actually carries over pretty well to modern day. And I'll continue doing this because like, unlike every other episode we've ever done, I've been there and I've done literally the same job the Soviets are doing in this. Um, there is a, a, a well-known uh, book. Uh, I think it's called The Horse Soldiers. They made it into a movie, which is called like 12 Strong, which is fucking terrible. Don't watch it. It's not good. The book is good. Um, but there is an incident where a guy was, was very brightly dressed and like a bright neon blue um robe and it's because like you know the bright colors are expensive so it lets everybody know that he has money um 
He's so he's pimping out there. Yeah, he's wearing bling. He's um, All right, cool. And the special forces advisor's like, hey, man, you should probably change. You stick the fuck out. And he was like, nope. And when they charged the uh, Taliban positions, he ran down the hillside screaming, firing his rifle at them while dressed like a goddamn highlighter. (laughs) And he survived. It's a power move. Yeah, that's that's big Taliban energy right there. Yeah, it is. You think he had his wallet kind of open too? Like he dropped in front of the Taliban like, oops. I bet his wallet had a chain on it. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of money spilled out. Um. So in order to stop these small mobile groups, the Soviets decided to cut the head off their leadership by attacking one of their bases of operation. That base of operation was the Panjshir Valley. That valley had been an open revolt against the Afghan government since mid-1979, a revolt that was led by a young man named Ahmed Shah Massoud. Massoud was an ethnic Sunni Tajik who was born to an upper-class family and whose father was a colonel in the Royal Afghan Army. During his youth, Masood was a hardcore Maoist, virtually learning Mao's little red book by heart before he went to college in Kabul and found God, which honestly sounds like the exact opposite of every other person's college experience. He went off to college, didn't party, learned like the yeah. Quran by heart <laughs> and like, he's like, I don't want to be a communist anymore. I want to serve God, which is virtually the opposite of every other college student I've ever heard of. I don't I don't know what his school ranking is on partying. Uh, I mean, it was Kabul University, so, which yeah. sounds like a downer, but it was Kabul University. I mean, it's Kabul University and like the pinnacle of uh, of the king they of Afghanistan. Hard. So they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. This is way before shit went to hell. Like he grew up in a peaceful Afghanistan, especially in Kabul, where it was effectively like a, it, it was a very up and coming city at right. the time. So he definitely. Uh, Masood fucked. He probably had, yeah, he Masood probably had a to party a lot. Oh, yeah. Maybe he burnt himself out, and that's why he oh, turned yeah, to the book. Yeah, he's like, you know what? I'm done with this life. So through all that, he eventually took part in a failed Islamic uprising with an organization that was the Muslim Youth Movement, after which he f- helped found Jamaat Islami, a more moderate faction opposite of Hek Maytar's organization. Since his forces took control of Panjshir in 1979, they have been absolutely wrecking the government and the Soviet shit nonstop. So... One of the key reasons for that is the Panjshir is an incredibly hard place to get to. Uh, I've actually been there back in 2008 during my first trip to Afghanistan. Even after decades and millions, probably tens of millions of dollars of working on roads and things um, to like extensively rehab their infrastructure, it is an incredibly rugged place to get to. Um, no, none of our military vehicles could safely traverse the roads, so we had to use like pickup trucks. Oh, yeah. Um, there's like rocky outcroppings that hang over every single street and road. No matter where you go, you're surrounded by the high ground. I cannot imagine trying to push into that place with thousands of fighters trying to kill you. Fuck. It seems like it would be virtually impossible. Uh, it's terrible. And the Panjshir Valley is fucking huge. Like if, if you try to corner anybody there, they're just going to move further up the mountains and wait you out. Yeah. Especially because uh, those, those trails are like spider webs. They go in every different direction, go into caves. The only people who know them are people who grew up there and that's who's fighting in them. You just can't win. Yeah. Like a better tactic would have been just, well, let's just build like, I don't know, like a fence at the, <laughs> yeah. at, at the mouth of the Panjshir Valley and just don't go in there. Um, so to make matters worse, you have to go through something known as the Selang Pass. Now the Selang Pass. So the Selang mm. Pass is something that nightmares are made of if you are um, claustrophobic. 
the Selang Pass is a narrow mountain road that snakes its way through the Hindu Kush. It, it has steep cliffs on one side that just straight fall hundreds and hundreds of feet. You will die if you fall off this road. I would imagine. Um, and the other side is a sheer cliff face. So, like, you, there's only one way through there, and that's forward on this tiny one-track road. If, if uh, a big transport truck came down, you had to pull off to the side to make room for it. And even then, it was fucking sketchy. Um, now, the Soviets are driving through here in armored vehicles and tanks, yeah. which is absolutely insane to me. As you can imagine, anything driving down this road is an incredibly easy target, and that is something that Masood immediately took advantage of to devastating effect. There's also a tunnel through the Slang area. That was a Slang tunnel. It's a narrow tunnel that wasn't quite big enough for all the Soviet military vehicles, but it was used nonetheless. Like, it was this or nothing. Right. And to this day, it is one of the only ways to get through the area. Jesus. Um, the Slang tunnel would eventually become the scene of one of the largest losses of life in through a traffic accident in human history. What? So the details of this are sketchy. Uh, sources vary widely, but locals from the area have told me personally about it. Um, so numbers tend to crawl up when you talk to Afghan sources. Like they didn't kill 50 Soviets. They killed 150, shit like that. But also the Soviets have never been forthright about their losses. So take whatever numbers I say throughout this entire thing, and it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, but pretty much everybody you talk to adds or takes away from a detail from the last guy. It's like a generationally long game of telephone. Um, so what follows is a kind of aggregated version of the story I've been able to put together. A Soviet convoy was driving through the tunnel when a fuel tanker exploded. Nobody's really sure how or why it exploded, but some people say it was an accident, while other people say it was a, a rebel bomb. Could go either way. The Mujahideen have never claimed responsibility for it. Um, either way, a fuel tank blew up and sent a cascading wall of flame through the tunnel, like something of it out of like fucking backdraft. Like, do you yeah, remember that shitty yeah. movie? Oh, that movie yeah. was great. I loved it. The fire roared. It's stupid. That movie was great. <laughs> you like Chappie. You can't say shit. <laughs> yeah, I Chappie did. was terrible. Shut your mouth. Uh, so when the wall of flames died away, 700 Soviet soldiers were dead, along with another 2,000 Afghan civilians. What? That is not the only problem with the tunnel. So that required a, a fuel tanker exploding somehow. That didn't even need to happen. So this tunnel was built by hand, effectively, through people that didn't quite understand complex engineering. Um, so there was a lack of venting. Now, Matt, oh. yeah. Uh, so now you can imagine some real good fart would just stay. Yeah, if it killed you. Yeah. Uh, so something as simple as a traffic jam could turn deadly. Soviet records indicate a different incident uh, where there was a traffic jam caused that caused a backup for several hours. The buildup of CO2 in the tunnel killed 64 soldiers and another Afghan, 100 Afghan civilians. Holy shit. Yeah. Did I mention that this pass and tunnel is the only way to get from Kabul to northern Afghanistan? Really? Because I probably should have. Yeah. Wow. You have to go through That's this area. Insane. Yeah. They needed a Kurt Russell. What? He was in backdraft. I'm glad you brought it back. I, I, <laughs> I want to watch the movie now. <laughs> you know what? That's what, just send Kurt Russell to Masood so he can get shot with an RPG. That's the better way of backdraft ending. I fucking hate you. <laughs> God, why are we friends? I wish I could hate you to death, but you can't. <laughs> so Soviet forces caught uh, in ambush had no way to fight back, forcing them to charge up the cliffs straight at the Afghans who were shooting at them. 
Now, remember, as I told you before, the Afghans were not all trained to do this, and their boots couldn't even let them do it if they wanted to. As a, so the Soviets tripped and fell up the mountain, slowly making progress up the cliffs, while the Afghans simply stopped shooting at them, climbed up a bit higher, and then started shooting at them again. That's awesome. Massoud's forces so thoroughly harassed and ambushed the Soviet supply convoys that he caused a military fuel shortage to the entire country. Whoa. Then, just because he was a bad motherfucker, Massoud began launching attacks on Bagram Airfield itself. Jesus. <laughs> I, I believe overland... On roads without getting blown up, that's at least an hour and a half drive. So that's hell of an attack for him to do. Yeah. This guy's got big energy, yeah. So um, I don't really go into talking about how Masood ended, but I'll... So Masood ended up being killed by Osama bin Laden the day before September 11th happened. Uh, by a, Osama? Yeah, through a suicide bomber posing as a journalist. Um, because Masood would end up leading the Northern Alliance... Okay. At the end of or during the Afghan Civil War after the Soviets left. And once the Taliban took everything over, the Northern Alliance led by Massoud was the only thing left standing that could be considered Western friendly. And they weren't. I mean, they committed some pretty gross war crimes too, but compared to the Taliban, they're pretty great. Um and to this day there's statues of them everywhere in northeast Afghanistan. He's known as the Lion of the Panjshir, um, is an absolutely awesome historical That's figure pretty cool yeah he he had so i spent a lot of my time in kapisa province in northeast of afghanistan which is pretty far away from panchia valley but um in the city and like the provincial uh, uh provincial capital there is a, a huge mural of him like ground like in like a five-story building from the That's from cool. the That's ground cool. to the top of it of just his giant face and uh it, it's really cool but his influence spread that far. That's fucking sweet. He undoubtedly would have been president for life of Afghanistan if Osama bin Laden had not killed him, like without a doubt. Uh, but unfortunately, history didn't play out that way. Yeah, happens. So once the Soviet offensives uh, into the valley began, Massoud's forces did much of the same thing as they'd done before. They simply hid back up in the hills. The Afghans would pull back further into the valley and shoot the Soviets from further up. As they got closer, they would just do the same thing again. By doing this over and over again, the Afghans managed to tie up entire regiments of Soviet soldiers to only a handful of fighters, exhausting the Soviets and bleeding them dry. Fuck. Because it's not like the Soviets were still trying to fight a conventional war when they didn't quite understand the Afghans did not give a shit about actually controlling the valley. So they would retreat, ceding large swaths of the valley to the Soviets, tire them out, then start shooting them again, fall back, fire at them again. Right. And the Soviets like, look, we took the valley. And did nothing. Ooh. Yeah. And did absolutely nothing. They, you lost like 800 people, yeah. and Masood's just going to come back. <laughs> but we did it. Yeah. This caused Soviet armor to just start randomly shelling houses and buildings. In some cases, when they found uh, civilians carrying some loose bullets in their pocket, they shot them for being rebel sympathizers. The Soviets were getting tired and worn out by constant ambushes and demoralized. This may have been because there was no real mission at all. They were dispatched to simply go into the valley and kill rebels. There was no objectives to take, and Soviet intelligence had no idea where the bulk of Massoud's forces were. They just assumed they would find them eventually when they, if they marched into the valley. They were literally pointed into a direction and told to march. Go that way. And that's a really old-school way of military thinking. Uh, there doesn't need to be any kind of overall mission objective for the lowest soldier to know what they're doing. Like, well, they'll just follow orders. And for the most part, that's true. 
But when you're, it just doesn't work when it comes to counterinsurgency operations. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer that counterinsurgency operations simply do not work without committing just so many war crimes. It's disgusting. The Soviets tried that too. Um, but this kind of top heavy old school way of thinking and military thought just does, does not work. Um, but it also helped that the Soviets had no idea, like there was no plan in place to ever fight this kind of war. Yeah. And, they never really got better over time is the craziest part. They would just keep doing the same thing, I would imagine. Pretty much. And it, it's telling. Do you see that as an issue? Well, that's the problem is Leonid Brezhnev kind of let the Soviet Union fall apart under his watch. He was the second longest serving um, head of state after Stalin. And under his watch, the Soviet Union just kind of crumbled and fell apart. He allowed total stagnation cronyism and corruption that like that had never been seen before. So most of the Soviet leadership weren't good at their jobs when it came to being a general. They were just friends of Brezhnev. So there was no forward thinking. And it was so cutthroat uh, with like loyalties and things like that. Like if you're like, hey, this isn't fucking working, you need to think of something else, you'd be fired. Like dissension was simply not tolerated. Yeah. If there was any kind of evolution of military tactics, they happened really, 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 really small units. Didn't spread much past that. And it was mostly just the Spetsnaz or the airborne units. That was it. Yeah. Um, when it came to mechanized infantry, which were uh, the bulk of the, the backbone of the Soviet fighting force, drive up and down the road, see what happens. And that's pretty much how it went for almost 10 years. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just kind of talked about this, but even the smallest tactical decision had to be made at headquarters. Um, There's no real coordination between any units. Um, the fighting was mostly defensive and on the enemy's initiative. So you have to be really good at defensive warfare, but you also have to be proactive. You have to try to outthink your enemy, and that never really seemed to happen. It almost sounds like they were never on the attack. Very rarely. Yeah. Um, the, the very few offensives that worked happened towards the end of the war and did very little, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Mm. Um, the real damage uh, that the, the Soviets caused were, was through sheer overwhelming air power and carpet bombing and their special forces units, which there was obviously not enough of them. Um, the Spetsnaz and airborne units did what you could, you could definitely see um, like Max Sog doing in Vietnam. With just as many war crimes, if yeah. not more. Yeah. <laughs> um, the small units of the Soviet army were decent. Um, anything past that were, were outright garbage. Um, and that's because the Soviets had an incredibly top-heavy decision-making process. Um, the Soviet advantage of overwhelming air power provided little recognizable help to soldiers only aware of their immediate surroundings, of which all they could see was rocks and people shooting at them. Simply locating the enemy was almost impossible. They were hiding in caves and behind boulders high in the mountains. Rebels only fought when conditions favored them. They often attacked using stolen RPGs to pick off Soviet personnel carriers and vehicles from afar, and snipers aimed lethally for the head or the feet, making wounded soldiers burdens for their units. One young lieutenant named Vladimir Polikov put it, by the time the Soviet forces left the valley, the only thing they managed to do was march from one end of the Panjshir Valley to the other. And it is interesting to point out that Lieutenant Polikov took part in Storm 333 and was an absolute uh, believer in the mission. And by this point, he was 
absolutely done with it. Really? They, they're like, nobody in the fucking leadership knows what the surprising. fuck they're doing. No, it's not. Um, numbers are hard to come by, but between September 1980 and September 1981, through four total offensives into the Panjshir Valley, the Soviets accomplished absolutely nothing while suffering thousands of casualties. For this, for I mean, the Soviets, for their part, say they only suffered 100 wounded, but there's no way that's true. 100 wounded and what did you say, 1,000, few thousand casualties? Yeah, well, I mean, so if you go by and the book Zinky Boys is is a really good book um where it, it's a funny I'm nickname sorry, Zinky. so the nickname Zinky yeah, Boys please explain that one um it comes to the fact that uh when soviets died the soldiers died they would be thrown into a zinc coffin and uh, cuz they had plentiful amounts of zinc okay it would be welded shut and shipped home so zinky boys depressing yeah but, it is thanks yeah uh but the book zinky boys um gives a, Look, that's fucked up. yeah uh gives a lot of firsthand accounts and <laughs> and lieutenants and captains like i lost an entire platoon i lost yeah. an entire company but they're never mentioned any official soviet uh letters and there's no reason that a, ca- a captain in the soviet army of all things is going to admit losing his entire right. command yeah. unless it actually fucking happened right jesus yeah I honestly, my favorite types of books are first-hand account types of books. Zinky Boys is one of the few I have found from this war. There's a few other ones, but this one is like completely uncensored. A lot of these guys, and this came out like right as the fucking war ended. So a lot of them got in a lot of trouble. Fuck. That's actually, I'm going to look this up. Um, I'm not going to say you can pirate it online through the PDF if you Google search Zinky Boys PDF, but you can Pirate it if you Google search Zinky Boys PDF. It's really good. Okay, I'll go ahead and buy it. Yeah. So, if I have not made this clear enough, there's no number ever published by the Soviet authorities and later the Russian authorities that pertains to casualties that can be reasonably trusted. The numbers I am using for firsthand accounts of Soviet officers and soldiers of company commanders on down. I see little reason for those officers to lie. Um, the number of dead and wounded suffered under his command um, to make it higher. I can, I can, however, see why the Soviet leadership would make it lower. And it should be noticed that these things aren't like... Uh, so one of the, the more enduring symbols of the Vietnam War is like people watching the news to see if their family died. Right. Or if their brother or son, whoever died. That didn't happen in the Soviet Union. You, your family was not told. Yeah. Um, very rarely would you receive a letter. Even rarer than that, would, you would just find a body shipped to you through the mail. Uh, in a sink coffin. Just right in front of the mailbox? Just drop it off in front of your house. Yeah. With no explanation of how you died. Uh, you welded shut. Your, your kid is just dead. And because they were welded shut, you weren't sure it was actually your uh, kid. Is this the wrong <laughs> family? If you remember when I told you about mobilization, they had terrible records of their conscripts. Yeah. So, and sometimes I get my neighbor's mail. Yeah. So I'd hate to have a dead body in front of my yeah. house. And the conscription was so thorough through the Soviet Union. I don't. It, so the vast majority of the Soviet soldiers who were fighting were not Russian. That, that needs to be yeah. explained. Whether that be for nefarious purposes or not, most of the people who died um, per like percentage, overwhelmingly from the satellite republics, um, they may have had Russian first names, which is not uncommon due to Russification, um, but uh, per population, a lot of them came from much smaller countries in the Soviet republics right, yeah. than Russia. So 
people in smaller villages and smaller republics were seeing a lot more of the zinc boxes and wounded soldiers show up with very little explanation of why. I wonder if the families knew what it was when it hit their lawn. Oh, everybody knew what the zinc boxes okay. were. Everybody knew oh, what I didn't, I didn't know if they thought, oh, cool, coffee table or no. something. No, they definitely knew. Uh, it did not take long for people to start understanding, like when a, a cargo truck showed up and kicked a box out in your front yard, like what that meant. Um, anyway, this would be far from the only attempts uh, into the Panjshir Valley. However, eventually the Soviet forces gained a foothold in the Ruka, Basrakht, and Anvia villages. Unfortunately, that meant nothing. I imagine, yeah, I imagine that foothold was like on some sand. It didn't matter. Just uh, went, well, slip. So that's an, a, co- a common misconception about northeast Afghanistan or northern Afghanistan as a whole. It's actually quite lush. Uh, once you go further south, you see the the deserts and the and the dirt and stuff like that. But northern Afghanistan is very heavily forested, um, which obviously does not play into a uh, uh, an attacker's benefit either, because then they can just hide behind trees and shit. Yeah. Um, like like I had talked about before, the Soviets really believed in conventional warfare. So like, haha, we took territory, but it just made them an easier target because now they were in the valley. Yeah. Um, their bases gave them control of the valley floor, while Masood's forces controlled everything else. The pressure on the Soviets was so fierce, eventually an entire brigade of Afghan soldiers simply ran off and joined Masood. <laughs> what? <laughs> yep. Holy shit. That's kind of a curveball. <laughs> At the same time, the Mujahideen struck back the following month when a battalion of the 201st Motor Rifle Division made its way southeast and they ran into a well-laid ambush. After Mujahideen's killed off their officers and radio men, the disorganized unit could not single for help nor coordinated defense. They stayed in their armored personnel carrier- carriers, firing weapons till their ammunition ran out. The guerrillas then overwhelmed them, destroying the entire battalion, leaving only a few survivors. Oh, God. I mean, that is... Horrifying. That's terrifying. Uh, I mean, it was not uncommon for Taliban fighters to attempt virtually the same thing, targeting the first and last vehicles, which is very, very common. And yeah. it was very, very common because they developed it against the Soviets. But that just goes to show you how terrible the leadership was within the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet's army, where if like it did not. So there were sergeants and there's corporals and there's warrant officers. Um, the warrant officers much, much different than what you think of as warrant officers nowadays in our military. Um, but the sergeants and the corporals were only really in charge of like physical discipline. If any, like they weren't non-commissioned officers in the traditional sense. They had no small leadership abilities. Um, so if you're a lieutenant or captain or whoever died, nobody had any idea what to do. No, like it wasn't like a, a down train thing. Like, well, if the lieutenant dies, the sergeant's in charge and this is what he has to do. That simply did not happen in the army. So like when they had no orders, they would simply sit down and die or run. That was it. Jesus. And, and this happened so often. The Soviet military um, did a complete refurbishment of its warrant officer corps to be more like we would think of a modern day non-commissioned officer which is really weird but that's how they did it they realized that the system wasn't working and it didn't uh, work then either yeah. but it was a it, it was an improvement when you start at the ground floor anything is an improvement but that happened a lot um this the soviets did not want to get out of their vehicles which i don't blame them yeah fuck. <laughs> frustrated soviet soldiers did what almost every other soldier trapped in nova guerrilla war has done unleash their anger and frustration on the civilian population Soon, instead of clearing houses and looking for enemy fighters, they would just chuck hand grenades in and fire machine guns through the windows. 
One paratrooper's testimony about fighting in the Kunar Valley describes a platoon's reaction to shots fired from the direction of a village building in which civilians were hiding. The Soviets blew up the entire structure with grenades and plastic explosives, after which Afghans began fleeing in different directions. The crowd included elderly women, men, and children, as well as, well as a few rebel fighters. Like, we're not saying that there was no fighters there, but yeah. still, human shields. The soldiers began slaughtering the Afghans, saying, quote, Among those running out the door was an old man who tried to escape, a soldier recalled. My friend shot at his feet, and the old man jumped in fear and ran to hide behind a bush. My friend aimed directly at the bush and fired around, after which just the legs slid into view under the bush. He was supposed to be hiding, my friend told me laughing. Another time, the soldiers captured a small boy who had shot them with an old musket, then brought the prisoner to a company commander. Quote, he split the boy's skull in half with his rifle, killed the boy with one blow without even getting up from his place. Jesus. And this is definitely not only something that happened in this one unit. According to a Mujahideen commander named Muhammad Asif, a Soviet unit left behind two dead soldiers during the same battle in the Kunar Valley. When a detachment returned to collect the bodies, the Afghans ambushed them from higher ground, killing seven more. The Russians retaliated by massacring livestock and villagers. Mujahideen estimates put the number of dead at 1,800 civilians killed in just 12 days. That is like some Reinhard Heinrich type anti-partisan shit. Like, it's awful. Is this the depressing episode of this? No. Oh, okay, cool. (laughs) Thanks. So it gets worse. Wait. It gets worse. Not only is that the tagline of our show, that's the tagline of all of Russian history. It really is. God. Yeah, silicone suck. Yeah. So, you remember how the Afghans originally packed their invasion force with Muslims from the Central Asian Soviet republics thinking it was a good idea. Not saying that right. was not a good idea. It turned out to be bad as far as Soviet leadership is that's concerned. That's surprising. So, one of the things that is important with Central Asia is... Their cultures are mostly tribal and ethnically based, and they go back thousands of years. The advent of these borders, dividing them into republics, is rather new. So many of the same people who are in Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, and all the other republics are also in Afghanistan. Like Those people are large parts of Afghanistan. The problem was um, the Afghan population saw those groups even though they were from a Soviet Republic and not Afghanistan uh, as like traitors. So they vented their anger on those ethnic groups who lived in Afghanistan. Um, They were just like slaughtered wholesale by members of the, uh, the Mujahideen, even though like Masood was an ethnic Tajik. Yeah. He didn't do that. Um, He wasn't a huge fan of Russians, but he, I mean, it doesn't require a lot of thinking to think uh, those are different. And some of those um, uh, those Soviet soldiers who the Soviet um, government thought like, oh, we have to pull these guys back because they might join the Muslims. Uh, they might join the Mujahideen to fight us. That did happen on a few occasions. Uh, they went over to the other side. Very, very few. Um, yeah. Some of them are still in Afghanistan today, who we will talk about in a later episode. I hope so. God. Do we have anything good coming out of this by any, by any chance? We mean good. Good and bad is relative in this podcast. Exactly. That's why I want something like this is really depressing so far. Um, depends. I'm a pretty big fan of Masood, so I, I, I like, like this Masood. episode. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I like. Masood. Actually, uh, I bought. So there's. Um, I lived in the provincial headquarters, uh, which is like a, a police base in uh, in um, Bagram, that like the the city, not the 
the airfield. Um, and they had a whole bunch of Masood stuff out and it was really in vogue to wear the same hat as Masood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like it was in the stuff. Like if you were, if you were considered a soldier, whether you're an at, like you wore a Masood hat and, uh, like what is a Masood hat? I, I don't know. Is it the, like a trucker hat with his patch on it or something? No, uh, it's kind of hard to explain. I'd have to show you a picture, but, uh, I don't know what it's actually called. Um, but I definitely bought one for like 10 bucks. Did you wear it? Oh, fuck yeah. It's comfortable. Yeah. And it was really warm for when it got cold. But um, yeah, like uh, all the Afghan generals wore them. The policemen wore them. Like, fuck yeah. This thing's good. There's got to be a point this behind the them. That's really comfortable. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll consider it, it kind of looks like an Afghan beret, but not dumb because I hate berets. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so to make matters worse, the rest of the Soviet army made out of Slavs, Armenians, and various other yeah. Eastern European groups began to deeply distrust their Asian uh, Muslim comrades who were, again, Soviet citizens. So the Soviets pulled all of the reserve units out, leaving virtually no speakers of any of the local language and country. Get fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You thought it was hard now? Just wait. Yeah. While all of this was happening... The Afghan army that the Soviet Union was trying to simply prop up began to rapidly disintegrate. When the Soviets disintegr- sh- what? I assume did they go to the other side? Because I think some I did. Would've. Some did. Some decided they wanted nothing to do with this war and went home. But the f- simple fact remains they were no longer in the Soviet army or the no longer in the PDPA army. Yeah. When the Soviets showed up, the Afghan army was around a hundred thousand men on paper, give or take. They could track down about a hundred thousand people. Paper's completely different. Um, within yeah. six months, how many how many people do you think they had left? Out of 100,000. 100, yeah. Okay, so six months. I'm going to go with how our show standard kind of goes. Go with a kind of short amount. I'm going to go with about 30,000, 20,000. You're actually exactly correct. That's 30,000. There's In yeah. six months, they, lo- they lost over half of their that's military. <laughs> yeah, that's like Luigi Cadorna bad. Yeah, <laughs> Luigi's up there going... This is the shit. But at, at least Cadorna lost them all in battle. They lost, like, the the Afghan army lost, I'm going to say, 90% of their soldiers without them ever firing a shot. Like, as soon as their lieutenant or, like, sergeant wasn't around, the fucking soldiers beat feet and got the fuck out of there. <laughs> Especially if they weren't from the capital, the government had no way to track them back down. What? <laughs> like, there's no social security numbers. Uh, very, they didn't keep. I mean, there's there's no real address system. There wasn't then. There isn't now. They just had secret handshakes that they gave to each other. I mean, and it would it'd be really easy to change your name. Uh, most Afghans only go by one name. Really? Yeah. So it's really easy to just vanish. Okay. <laughs> this that's just I can't. Get my whole mind around that because I'm obviously used to. Right, right. I mean, traditionally, like, uh, they'll have their first name, which they go by, and they'll right. have a last name, but it's virtually. Is there anything on paper saying that this is who they are? Pe- ever? People have tried multiple times to do that. So, uh, one of the, I'll close with this. One of the things that they, like I said, they had 100,000 people on paper. They probably didn't. Uh, those are called phantom soldiers. Um, this we ran into this issue. The United States ran into this issue, where um, corruption is so endemic in the Afghan government and the Afghan military that um, people will sign up and then vanish, or like they'll sign up under the agreement they'll give their commander half their money, um, and then they'll vanish. Or people will just sign up people that simply don't exist because there's there's no identification system. So pay had nothing to do with the name; it only had to do with Physically, if you were there, you had to physically be there. Right. Sometimes. Okay. And 
they're still doing this today, um, though it has gotten slightly better. But outside of Kabul, um, because like like I like I've pointed out probably a dozen times now, it's really the only thing the government ever controlled. So what any kind of reform when it came to that did not really leave the capital. Yeah, and that's why a lot of those. Uh, I guess you can call them memes. It's not really a meme that you see shared on Facebook and sometimes Twitter. Like, see, this is what the Afghanistan looked like before the Taliban. It's not true. Like, you see women walking around uncovered, yeah. uh, wearing short sleeve shirts and, and jeans and stuff like that. That was only Kabul and it was under the communists. But it didn't stay that way for long. <laughs> yeah, that's a bad meme. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's mostly based on hating Islam. Yeah. But yeah, it's xenophobic. Uh, it, when, once you point out that, like, well, that's what Afghanistan achieved under communism, they really don't like that. And also, Afghanistan. No, the truth is really the the truth hard. is somewhere in the middle, where yeah. a lot was accomplished in the city of Kabul under varying communist governments, but never really good stuff. Um, but yeah, all all the reforms that tried to force Afghan society, kind of like um, uh, how he had a picture of Stalin on his desk because he thought he wanted to be Stalin by ripping Afghanistan into the 20th century through violence, and that was what he was trying to do and failing. Um, so with that, that's where we'll leave you for this week. Oh God. Oh yeah. It gets worse too. Um, I can assure you it gets worse, but maybe not in the ways you would expect. Ooh, you're throwing me a curveball. This whole thing's curveballs, baby. So rate and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much. Yes, I, yes. I've, I've noticed we have like damn near a hundred of those, which is awesome. Thank you so much. Um, we've made, we've met our Patreon goal. Uh, which is outstanding. Yeah, um, I, didn't, I don't. I don't know what we did to do that. I don't either. Um, but if you think what we do is worth a dollar, throw us a dollar. You'll get access Please. to one bonus episode a month. Steven Seagal keeps looking at us. We need. It's we terrifying. Owe, we owe him money, or he'll do bad things to our friends and family. Um, Five dollars and up, we'll get hopefully one bonus episode a week. Um, we're still working on the logistics of that. Um, you need shirts to wear out in public. Oh yeah, make it one of ours. Please. Uh, if you like military, want to buy some of our used shirts in the from the room because we get pretty sweaty in here from time to time. No, no we'll start selling those. No, we will not do that. Um, <laughs> we won't <laughs> do that. DM Joe, please don't. Uh, if about you, some sweaty shirts. If you like military sci-fi, my book Citizen of Earth is out, and we will see you next week. Later.